This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. So tonight I'm going to talk to you guys about injuries to the female athlete and the creation of the Women's Sports Medicine Center at UCSF, which is near and dear to my heart. We're, we're really excited about this. Um, so first I'm going to talk about women in sports and the history of that. So really since 1972 is when the passage of Title IX happened. And at that time, the number of female athletes increased dramatically in the United States. And we're currently at an all-time high. And this is my favorite female athlete here. I always put her first. That's Wilma Rudolph, who many of you may remember um, had polio as a child. And as she aged, she became the fastest woman in the world, which is really exciting. She was a three-time Olympic gold medalist and world record holder. So she is aspirational to me as to most of us orthopedic surgeons who take care of people with injuries when they're kids. We love to see them succeed. So she epitomizes that. The first woman was admitted to the military academy in 1976. And at that point, it was noted that, that there was an increase in overuse injuries in female cadets compared to their male counterparts. And research has progressed. So a study in West Point in 1992 was really the first modern study published that found that women engaging in sports had more lower extremity injuries than men, particularly stress fractures and patellofemoral pain. Many of the problems that female athletes face are the same ones that men get, but many, but there are some that occur exclusively or much more commonly in women. And we're going to talk about those tonight. What we know about injuries in general. So if you look at sports all around, which sport has the highest injury rate and it's boys and men's football. That, that makes sense. It's high contact. That's the one you see the highest injury rate. But if you look at directly comparable sports for men and women, so if you can compare basketball or soccer or baseball to softball, women have a much higher injury rate when they're playing the same sport as men, comparatively speaking. We also know that boys and men have the highest rate of needing a surgical procedure. But once you take football out of the equation, most of those are from football or rugby. Once you get those sports out of the equation, women, again, have a much higher rate of injury requiring surgery in those comparable sports like soccer or basketball. So these are some particular disorders that are more common to women. Um, there's one called spondylolisthesis, which is a stress fracture of the low, lower spinal uh, vertebrae. They can get um, or spondylolysis, and then spondylolisthesis is when the two vertebrae actually slip on each other. So both of those are more common. There's stress fractures of the pelvis and hip. Patellofemoral pain or anterior knee pain is common in women. Non-contact ACLs are more common in women. Ankle instability multi-directional instability of the shoulder as well as swimmer shoulder are more common in female athletes than men. And I'm going to touch on each of these briefly and explain why, but overuse injuries is, is definitely more common in women. And the explanations are thought to be multivariable. So there's a lot of different reasons why this probably happens. There's hormonal variation. So we know, and I'll talk about some of these studies in a moment, but as uh, women throughout their menstrual cycle, there's different peaks of estrogen at certain levels, and that can change how your body responds to activity. 
Um, men overall have more muscle mass on their bodies related to their overall body weight. And muscle is protective against injury. So it can help absorb force and stress. And um, women just have less muscle mass uh, compared to the men. We know that ligament and tendon composition is slightly different in women than men. And uh, we have different receptors um, for hormones on our ligaments, particularly in our ACL. That's been studied a lot. Um, women probably have different nutrition and eating, eating issues that some of the men don't face. And there's also the role of menarche. Um, so the beginning of when menstruation starts, the menstrual cycle is all up until menopause. And that all affects how uh, bone density is formed and how women respond to injury. So again, touching on uh, the low back issues that women get. So there's um, spondylolysis. Again, that's a stress fracture that occurs. It's called the pars intraarticularis, but it's a part of the vertebral uh, body in the back of the spine. And, and that can get a stress fracture, particularly in activities where there's hyperlordosis or excessive bending of the spine. So you see it in gym, gymnasts, we see it in divers as well as dancers. And you can see this is a typical position. This would be a hyperlordotic spine where she's excessively um, extended. And then spondylolisthesis is the same. And that's where you get an actual slippage of one vertebral body on top of the other. And again, common in gymnastics. Um, we also know that, that the progression of a spondylolisthesis. So again, that's when the vertebral body, I'm going to try to show you with my, my hands, they should be lined up at a nice block and one will slip forward. And that occurs more commonly in women and the progression of it over time is more common in women. So um, just something to be aware of if, if you know someone who has that disorder in females, it's a little bit tougher diagnosis. Um, female athletes are also more likely to get stress fractures from overuse in running. So one of the most common ones is right here in the hip. This is a dangerous one because the hip fracture can actually propagate and cause the blood supply to the bone to be cut off. So stress fractures, again, are, are more common in women and something we have to look for, particularly in female athletes presenting with hip pain or pelvic pain that are long distance runners. That's our common when we see it. And so again, typically you see it due to overuse. They get, um, it can be a fracture in the femoral neck or the pubic ramus, which are the pubic bones. And, um, and particularly in someone who's amenorrheic where, so a female athlete that is exercising to the point where their caloric consumption does not support menstruation. So if they stop having their period, that's a dangerous thing and their bone density can drop and they're more likely to get a stress fracture. So just something to be aware of. ACL injuries are the ones that are near and dear to me. This is probably the most common thing that I end up operating on. Um, we know that risk factors for ACL injuries are higher in women. The sports that we commonly see it are soccer, basketball, and gymnastics. Um, they're reported to have an incidence uh, two to eight times higher than their male counterparts. And the proportion is higher in non-contact sports. Um, there's a lot of different reasons and theories as to why this happens. Um, we know that women actually, so these are intrinsic factors. So things we can't really change um, that are just intrinsic to women in general compared to men, but we have a smaller cross-sectional area of the ligament. So the ligament itself isn't quite as big as a male ligament. And we know that the strength of the ligament is proportional to the cross-sectional area. So if you have a smaller cross-sectional area, it's, it's can't absorb as much force. It's more likely to rupture. Um, women also have a narrow, what we call a narrow notch. So that's the angle between uh, the knees. And I'll show you that in a slide in a moment, we have greater Q angles. So the Q angle is the angle, 
um, from the hip, from the, the edge of the pelvic bone to the center of the knee, and then down to uh, the center of the ankle. And because women have wider hips, our pelvises are wider than men. Men have a narrow, elongated pelvis. Women have a wider pelvis. Then we tend to have more of a Q angle, we call it, which increases the force on the knee. So we have um, this anatomic change in us that makes us more prone to getting an, an ACL tear. We know that if you have a greater Q angle, you have increased shear stress on the ligament. We also have increased laxity um, compared to men. So our knees are actually just a bit looser. That's probably the role of estrogen in our body. So estrogen um, makes our skin supple. It makes our collagen supple, supple. The ligaments are made up of collagen. When we have increased estrogen, you're more likely to increase your laxity. And then again, there's these hormonal variation issues. So we're going to touch on these. Some of the extrinsic factors involved um, involve your level of conditioning. So these are things we can control. What are extrinsic factors? So the level of conditioning, the level of muscle strength. And then again, we have some altered motor control strategies um, in females compared to men. So touching on knee laxity. So we know some of the research has shown women with laxity values greater than one standard deviation um, have a relative risk almost three times higher of getting an ACL than women with less knee, knee laxity. So clearly there's a component of hyperlaxity that contributes to an ACL injury. And again, when they look, when they, when they look at this with different variables, so they looked at uh, women with increased laxity as well as a narrower femoral notch, they were 17 more times likely to rupture their ACL. And when they looked at, again, someone with increased laxity with an elevated BMI, so increased body mass index, um, over one standard deviation, they were 40 times more likely to rupture their ACL. So all these things can contribute um, to why we have more ACL ruptures. Um, when adjustments are made for height, the ACL, again, is statistically smaller in cross-sectional area in girls compared to boys. So it's interesting because you would think the height, it would be relatively the same, but it's not. So even though if you have a, a, a male patient who's 5'8 and a female patient who's 5'8, their ACL in the female is going to be smaller. And that, again, can absorb less stress, more likely to rupture when they're, when they're in activity. And then this is this concept of the notch. So the, the shape of the femur is a little different in women. So you can see this female uh, femur at the end has this very narrow or not uh, much narrower notch and the, the male has a wider space. The notch is where the ACL lives. It's like the little house for the ACL. So you can imagine if you have this tight little house, it's more likely to experience sheer stress than this nice wide open space where it can breathe. So it can twist and turn and have a little more, more room, but less chance of rupture. The hormonal variation I think is really interesting. There's different, um, different studies have kind of shown different things and we'll go over them. We know that the ACL has been shown to have receptors for different hormones actually on the ligament itself. So the ACL has estrogen, progesterone, and relaxin receptors. All of these are female hormones and they're all on the female ACL. So there is some component of uh, responsiveness of the ligament during um, your menstrual cycle. Um, they have looked at uh, what, what can estrogen do to the body? So they know that estrogen can enhance the synthesis of collagen in the body. It's also been shown to decrease cross-linking. All right. So this is why 
uh, women have looser ligaments than men. So we decrease our cross-linking, which means the cross-linking is how the proteins of collagen bond together. And our collagen is less bonded together than males. All right. So we get increased laxity of all of our joints as a result. This has also been shown if you watching out there are, are pregnant or have been pregnant in your life. We get this increased laxity of our, of our joints when we're pregnant because the estrogen levels increase significantly in our bodies. So a lot of women that are pregnant will complain of all these new muscle aches and pains. And sometimes their pelvis will start expanding early in their pregnancy because of hormones. Women uh, have been shown to have decreased collagen synthesis at rest and after exercise compared to men. So this is an important thing. So after we exercise, when we stress our bodies, our bodies need time to recover and the muscle and the tendon collagen, everything will kind of regenerate. So we break it down when we exercise and then we have this regeneration period. When we're at rest, um, ours do not regenerate as quickly as men's. So we potentially are more susceptible to fatigue and more susceptible to overuse because we're not having that bounce and recovery that the men have. And that could be related to the level of testosterone in their bodies. So kind of interesting. These studies I really like, these were done um, in the early 2000s, but they looked at um, when in the menstrual cycle, they were seeing more ruptures of ACL. So what this study showed, women had a significantly greater percentage of non-contact ACL injuries during the mid cycle or ovulatory phase when the estrogen was peaking. And that makes sense. So here, here comes the estrogen. It's good. This is your menstrual cycle. This is the midpoint before you ovulate the estrogen goes, it spikes to, to um, stimulate ovulation. And you can see, look at all these ACL tears that occurred in these NC2A athletes. It's really interesting. So you see this bump goes up of the estrogen and there's a cluster of ACLs that occur right in that period. Um, and then there was another study looking uh, again at NC2A athletes suggesting that ACL rupture was um, potentially more likely right before menopause. And that was thought to be more of a neuromuscular control. I'm sorry, not menopause, um, menses thought to be a neuromuscular control issue. When you look at the level of conditioning. So when we look at extrinsic factors, well, who's more likely to get an ACL? Is it someone in peak physical shape or someone who's less in shape? It was clearly the people that are less in shape. So they found that the non-contact ACLs occurred much more frequently in intramural sports versus the varsity sports where they were having professional strength coaches and people condition them. So that makes sense. Someone who um, uh, we, we actually saw this in COVID when there was this period of inactivity and no one was really exercising. And then all of a sudden the sports were turned back on and everybody went back and we saw tons of ACLs because people were out of shape during that time, unfortunately. Um, other extrinsic factors. So there's some basic biomechanics of women. So when they say we, we run like girls, there's a little bit of truth to that. And I don't mean that in a sexist, bad way. I'm a woman saying that as an ex-runner, but do we run like girls a little bit? So we know that women athletes have smaller knee flexion angles, increased valgus angle of the knee, increased quad muscle, decreased hamstring muscle activation during running and cutting compared to male counterparts. All of those factors have been shown to increase strain on the ACL. So every single thing we're doing. So a lot of the ACL prevention programs, and some of you might have a child um, that's in one of those programs or have been part of one yourself, but a lot of the ACL prevention programs are focused at changing these issues. How do women land from jumping? Um, how can they run and have a better alignment of their leg? So those things are 
important to think about and modifiable factors. They're things that we and the athletes can actually help control to make them better. Um, other extrinsic factors, again, um, body mass index. So women that were much larger out of a range of sta a standard deviation higher um, had a much higher incidence of non-contact ACL injuries than women that were a healthy BMI. So um, that makes sense. If you are carrying more weight on your body, there's just more force being put across your, your ligaments as you're training. And then of course there's, there's overtraining where, where you get fatigue. And this is a kind of a soapbox of mine, but you know, there's been this professionalization of youth sports in the United States um, where sports have really been taken out of the schools and put into this competitive club team environment uh, where the kids are going to travel teams and year round showcases and, and the sports go year round. There's really not many breaks. And it's currently a $17 billion industry in the United States. Um, but the reality is you're, these injuries are happening to kids younger and younger. Um, again, because I think they're overtraining a bit. They're they're training at a level that a pro would. I mean, I will routinely see patients in my office that will describe their weekend to me, and they did a two-hour practice Saturday morning. Then they went to a tournament where they played six games in a day. Then they had to go back the next day do three games. I mean, as you can tell, uh, you know they're doing twelve hours of exercise in a day. So so it's it's unusual. And I know it's hard to get out of that pattern, but um, I think most of the sports doctors around the country are like, stop, stop. You know, this isn't healthy for our kids, but um, it's really hard to stop the machine. For those of you that are parents and are involved in this, you know that that's an issue. So surgical considerations for women um, that are undergoing an ACL, uh, there's new data to suggest that women are more likely to have a re-tear of the ACL graft after surgery. All right. So not only are they more likely to have the first tear, they're more likely to have a second tear. Um, we know that hamstring grafts, the retear um, rate is a little bit higher, particularly in this younger age population between 15 and 20. All right. Um, compared to a bone a BTB graft or a bone patellar bone graft. Um, other data refutes that and shows no significant difference. So there's one study that shows the hamstring graft uh, rupture is a little bit higher um, the problem with the, with the bone patella bone graft, which is the patellar tendon, it's kind of the old gold standard that's been around forever is that there's a very high incidence of kneeling pain or pain in the front of their knee that lasts and that can last forever. So we worry about that, um, in girls. So because that re-rupture rate is so high in young females, is there a role for augmentation of the grafts in a select population? And that is currently being done. So um, one way we can augment it is with something called an um, interlateral ligament. So studies looking at a combined ACL with an interlateral ligament has shown a significant decrease in the graft re-rupture rate. And um, so it's thought to use that for high-risk populations. Some people are automatically saying these young women should not only have an ACL, but augment it with something else. And um, again, it's uh, the studies are fresh and new and people are looking at it right now. So it's to be proven if that's if that's going to be beneficial long term. Um, but I definitely if someone has ruptured their graft once and they need a revision, I definitely am doing that for my patients. Um, as far as graft choice, there's no perfect choice. Um, the one that's come into to uh, play recently. So again, the hamstring is nice, uh, but maybe it has a little bit higher re-rupture rate, certainly hurts less to take the hamstring. The patellar tendon, they have that anterior knee pain. So 
the quad tendon graft has grown in popularity over the last several years. And using a quadricep tendon, again, in early studies showed a decreased re rupture rate compared to the hamstring. So that's a win. Um, it's got a nice girth to it. So again, we want to increase and maximize that cross-sectional area to give it strength. And there's, they really don't have the morbidity at the harvest site. So they don't get that pain from kneeling like you do with a patellar tendon graft. And just anecdotally, patients often will describe a bit easier rehab period. So in the um, ones that I've done, I've had really happy patients with that. And I like to use it in young adolescent women. I think it's a great choice. So again, that's just more discussion on which graft we like to use. Um, so in summary, just on ACL injuries, female patients definitely have a higher rate of ACL injury compared to males. There's a higher risk of re-tear in that population. The risk of post-traumatic osteoarthritis is noted as high as 87%. So it's extremely high chance that they're going to get osteoarthritis as they get older. Um, our focus is on prevention uh, strategies. So teaching the young women when they're, when they're young, when they're girls, how to land appropriately, how to do plyometric exercises, to do jumping and um, training and do neuromuscular activation really to, to help prevent them from getting these injuries, um, limiting their load. So making sure they're not suffering from overuse and that fatigue that can lead them to those. And also just uh, being aware of the different surgical considerations when you're dealing with young women. So moving on to another diagnosis, I can talk about ACLs all day, but I'm going to go on to patellofemoral pain. So patellofemoral pain is one of the most common things that we see in the knee. Um, again, it's overall thought to be due to the limb alignment. So that Q angle that I spoke about earlier, where our, the women's hips are wider, the knee drops in, and then the ankle flares out. All of that leads to a force on the kneecap that will make it ride out to the side and that can increase pain and cause trouble um, and, and kind of a diffuse pain behind the knee is what most people describe. Um, it's also called runner's knee at times because it can be exacerbated by running and jumping sports. Um, other things uh, that can increase uh, the incidence of that pronation of the foot, again, that increased Q angle. Um, patella alta, which means a high riding patella, which women are more likely to have. And then again, that underlying ligamentous laxity that women tend to have where our kneecaps can be more mobile or hypermobile compared to our male counterparts. Um, the treatment of patellofemoral pain, usually it's non-operative. 95% um, of the time, we do not need to do any surgery on it. Typically focuses on physical therapy, quadricep strengthening, um, stretching of the IT band, they can do different modalities such as taping. There's different taping techniques that help um, orthotics in the shoes that help correct a flat foot deformity can help also with uh, patellofemoral pain. There's different um, muscle stimulation. So they can do some um, VMO or vastus medialis. The inner quad muscle can be stimulated to fire and strengthen. And then, well, again, patient education and um, the activity modification. So people aren't um, doing activities that, that aggravate it. Um, again, surgical treatment is extremely unusual. It's most likely to benefit patients that are having recurrent instability. So if the kneecap is so malaligned that it keeps dislocating, those are typically the people that we operate on. And, um, and usually we try non-operative even with them first. So if you dislocate your kneecap, you're going to go to physical therapy usually first, and then surgery is a last resort for those patients.
All right, so I'm going to shift focus onto my favorite joint, which is the shoulder. So shoulder instability, which means the shoulder dislocates, dislocates out of joint. And traumatic shoulder instability in women is actually pretty low. So that's a great thing. Um, if you look at the incidence of who dislocates their shoulder, 90% of them are men, 10% are women. All right, it's that low. Um, women, however, when they do it and they need surgery, they have significantly worse post-op outcomes and they have a tendency to have recurrence higher than men. Again, we tend to have that underlying hyperlaxity in the shoulder uh, or in all of our joints. The same, same problem in the knee can happen in the shoulder and you're more likely to have repeat dislocations. Uh, women have a higher rate of what we call multidirectional instability. So multidirectional instability is when the shoulder has this subtle instability in all directions. So it can kind of sublux out the front, out the back, out the bottom. And again, that's due to our collagen being looser in, in that patient where they will have this collagen. It's, it's a variant of normal. I don't like to say it's a deformity, but they have collagen fibers that are less, pat, uh, less tight. And then the shoulder will sublux out the front and the back. Um, non-operative treatment is the mainstay of, of treatment for that problem. Most of them can do physical therapy. What you're doing is training your muscles to do the job that the, um, collagen is not doing. Women also have inferior clinical outcomes respect with respect to their, um, pain scores after that. So it takes a long time for them to get better. There are something called, there's something called a swimmer shoulder as well. So this is a common problem that happens with swimmers. And here in the Bay Area, we see it a lot because we have such a strong swim culture. Um, there was a great study actually done out of Kaiser in California, a retrospective analysis where they looked at 3,700 collegiate athletes. And there's uh, statistically different gender differences in swimming and water polo compared to men. And women had increased shoulder pain. Hip pathology as well. So, so there's some difference in outcomes. So when patients have to have hip arthroscopy, which is a procedure that's being more commonly done over time. Um, it used to be a very rare, rare thing, even when I was training. And now, now a lot of patients undergo hip arthroscopy. It's the fastest growing orthopedic procedure. So when, when they looked at is that women tend to have the poorest outcomes with hip arthroscopy. And the reason is that the pathology between male and female hip problems are a little different. So women, again, tend to have that hypermobility of their hip, um, where men, it tends to be more of an what we call impingement, impingement of the hip. So um, in labral tearing. So the women tended to do worse, again, because that, that laxity is still there. Again, higher number of women have failed initial hip arthroscopy. 70% of patients that are undergoing a revision hip arthroscopy were women. All right. They are much likely to have to go back for a second procedure. Ankle instability, um, female athletes, again, much more likely to sustain an ankle sprain and much more likely to fail surgical intervention. They don't do as well. Again, our collagen is looser. And then just one other injury, I, I always say, you know, we don't sometimes think of cheerleaders as athletes, but they are. And when you're covering a sports event, we're also helping take care of them. So women actually have the highest, highest rate of catastrophic injury mainly due to cheerleading. So cheerleading in high school and college accounts for 50% of all catastrophic injuries to female athletes. They tend to get cervical spine injuries 
um, or brain injuries, uh, head trauma. And usually it's from what they call stunting, where they, they'll throw somebody two or three stories in the air and uh, the tumbling, they can fall and, and break their neck. So, you know, it's an issue and something to be aware of when it comes to that. Now, I just want to touch on some medical issues that affect female athletes, again, much more than men. One is iron deficiency. So due to the blood loss of the menstrual cycle, many female athletes are iron deficient. So they um, lack the iron stores uh, that, that male athletes have. Um, and resting iron stores are associated with improved performance in any athlete, whether it be a, a male or female. Women also suffer from athletic amenorrhea. It's present in up to 20. Amenorrhea means uh, the cessation of the menstrual cycle. So there's no, no periods anymore. And why does that happen? It happens in 20% of vigorously exercising women. In present, it's present in 50% of elite runners and professional ballet dancers. So it's an extremely common problem in elite athletes. It was initially thought to be to, to an insufficient amount of body fat. Now it's thought to be from too little calorie consumption. So most amenorrheic athletes are about 25% below the normal rate of caloric consumption. Um, occasionally it can be from an eating disorder like anorexia, orthorexia, bulimia, which is present in 15 to 66% of female athletes. Athletic amenorrhea. So what's the problem? Why, why do we worry when they don't get their period? Bone mineral loss can be seen after six months of amenorrhea. Uh, and that can resemble that after menopause. All right. 60 to 70% of peak bone mass is acquired before the age of 20. All right. So it's really important that they are able to have their period because that's during their peak bone growing period. So if you don't, if you, if you have a cessation of your menstrual cycle, you start to leach density from your bones. And that's when you see a drop in the bone density. Restoration of a normal menstrual cycle can retard the bone loss, but the bone that's lost cannot be replaced. So this is really important as these athletes age, of course, we care about them when they're 20, but when they hit the age of 60, 70, 80, we don't want to see these um, post-menopause fractures that occur from osteoporosis. So important to know. There's the term, the female athlete triad. This was a term coined in 1991 to describe menstrual irregularity, disordered eating, and premature osteoporosis that we see in female athletes. It was revised in 2007 by the American College of Sports Medicine to focus more on the metabolic features of the syndrome, essentially low energies available with or without disordered eating. So they, they kind of took the disordered eating out of it because they didn't want women not getting treated because they were worried about the stigma of having an eating disorder. Um, again, the hallmarks are menstrual dysfunction, low bone mineral density. And again, all three components do not need to be present for this athlete to need help. Um, we know that a higher percentage of non-competitive athletes what we call aesthetic athletes. So aesthetic athletes are the sports that are judged. So figure skating, um, gymnastics, where they get a score diving, they're much, there's a much higher risk of them uh, be having this uh, female athlete triad. Um, endurance athletes, so cross-country runners also have a very high risk. Uh, more athletes have menstrual dysfunction and stress fractures than controls uh, that are in those aesthetic sports. And what they found is that being a competitive athlete in the other sports, such as basketball 
lacrosse, football, they actually had less disordered eating than the controls. So some sports are more protective against that and others are, are more prone to it. Just touching on concussion. So the incidence is higher in women. Uh, women have increased symptom severity, longer duration of recovery. Female athletes have twice the concussion risk compared to men. And girls soccer is second only to football. So a lot of people want their athlete, kids to play soccer. They feel like that's a safe sport, but not necessarily. Um, they do have a very high concussion rate, again, second to football. Um, female athletes report more symptoms after concussion. They tend to have inferior results with respect to visual memory compared to the males. And they take a mean time of six days longer than males to initiate return to play progression compared to, compared to the men. So, um, and some people don't really, we don't fully understand why that is. Um, and, uh, some people think the women are just more likely to report their symptoms. The men are hiding it. Um, does it really take us longer than men just hiding it? We don't, we don't know. So it's kind of interesting. Another issue just uh, with women in athletics is exercise during pregnancy. So regular exercise is actually encouraged and preferable to just intermittent bursts of activity. Um, just certain positional things. Uh, women need to avoid exercise in the supine position after the first trimester. Again, the baby can sit on the vena cava and cause decreased blood flow um, back uh, to the to the heart and lungs. Um, they encourage stopping when fatigued, do not go to extreme exertion. Obviously they wanna avoid contact sports and impact to the fetus. Um, they need to increase caloric intake accordingly. Um, they recommend exercise that keeps your core body temperature below 38 degrees and postpartum resume gradually over six weeks back to norm. Um, I was always taught, and I think this is great advice, if you're exercising a lot before you get pregnant, you can maintain that. I ran up until I was seven or eight months till I was too big to physically run, but you can, you know, I, I kept running my entire pregnancy up until seven months. Cause that was what I was used to. My body was used to running and I was able to maintain that. Um, so, you know, it is, it is good to continue exercise and stay in shape. It's good for your mind and your body. So Exercise and aging in women. So we, we have our motto here that we treat athletes of all ages and sizes. So I, I want to make sure that we are including people of um, all, all ages. Again, that is what we are doing at our Women's Sports Medicine Center. I think it's so important that women stay active as they get older. Um, you know, just a few tips. Uh, they say beware starting really high impact activity after menopause again, unless you're used to it. So if your baseline is you're running six miles a day, of course you can keep doing that. Your bone density is used to it, but it's not wise to just ramp up and start an exercise like that without a nice gradual progression. If you're past menopause, again, the issue is the bone density and maybe less recovery. Um, starting young and staying active is the key. So we encourage everyone. I mean, that's why I do my job. I want everybody to stay active and exercising. We know that weightlifting and strength training can retard the bone loss associated with normal aging. So again, we want to prevent people from getting osteoporosis and losing their bone density over time. Certain ones that are particularly good for aging, you know, as, as people get older, the risk of falls is higher and uh, balance training via, via Tai Chi or yoga have been shown to be very effective to help um, elderly people maintain their balance and prevent falls. So in summary, the women get the same injuries as men, but we tend to get uh, many of them at, at a higher rate and risk of injury. Um, 
And then I'm going to talk a little bit about what we're building here at UCSF, and then we can talk about that. Um, I, this, this is a little highlight slide. So this is my our, our boss, the director of sports medicine at UCSF, Dr. Brian Feely, who's the ultimate girl dad. He's got, um, I believe, four daughters now. Anyway, he's 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 got uh, quite a large family, and he loves to coach his girls, and he's very involved in their sports life. And he is the one who actually I need to give credit to. It was his idea to start the Women's Sports Medicine Center, and he um, I'm very grateful he helped uh, me. Um, he's helping me uh, get it up and running. So as the director, and then we have a, a new our new newest partner at UCSF. She's been here over a year now, but Dr. Stephanie Wong. Um, was hired last fall. And with the addition of Dr. Wong, we currently have the largest number of female sports medicine faculty in the United States, which is really exciting. This is me right here, this lower picture. And then Dr. Wong is right here. Then we took this picture. We love this. We had an all-female team in the OR one day. And this is when she was a resident still. She's come back now as an attending, but I'm, I'm the attending. She's the resident. And then we had a junior resident and a visiting medical student, but we had four women operating that day. It was really fun. Um, so 46% of our sports faculty, um, are women, which is also the highest percentage in the United States. So we're really proud of that at UCSF. We have a lot of diversity and a push for diversity. I'm going to briefly touch on my partners. There's Dr. Carlin center. Um, and what I, what I love about my partners is that we were, for those of us in sports medicine, we were all athletes. Every single one of us was an athlete of some, some type, and everyone has been injured. So we get it. We get what. Um, women go through. We understand training. We understand what it's like to be injured, to be on the sidelines, how hard that is emotionally, um, particularly for a, a young high school or collegiate athlete. Um, so Dr. Center, again, she was a four-year collegiate rower at Radcliffe. She's also a lifelong ACE fan. Um, Dr. Cindy Chang, who um, is, uh, we, we work together in the Berkeley office. She's also in the city office, but um, she was a three-sport three athlete in high school, a club volleyball player at Ohio State. She herself suffered an ACL tear, and now she's active in beach volleyball, golf, and she likes to cycle. She also raised an amazing daughter who went on to play major league soccer at a Berkeley high school. So we're very proud of Cindy and her daughter. Um, our probably most decorated athlete in our department is Dr. Kristen Wingfield. Kristen's primary care sports medicine as well. She was an elite gymnast from a young age. She was on the Canadian national team from 12 to 17. She suffered multiple injuries, had a navicular stress fracture that kind of sidelined her, her um, Olympic dreams for Canada. And she ended up going to uh, transitioning to diving and competed in the Olympic trials in Canada in 1992. She then joined Cirque du Soleil and she spent her medical school um, moonlighting as a Cirque du Soleil gymnast, one of the one of the acrobats and performers for Cirque du Soleil. Uh, she was with them for 10 years um, while she was attending medical school at Stanford. She would fly to Vegas on the weekends to perform. And she now is an active mom and likes to rock climb golf and does running. We have Dr. Ellie LaRoque. Also three-sport athlete out of Santa Cruz in high school. She did track, soccer, cross-country. She did competitive water skiing for a period of time when she was in college and right after college. Now she loves to run, hike, scuba, and fish. I love this picture with her. She and her husband, they're large, the largest grouper in the world. Um, Dr. Stephanie Wong, who I mentioned earlier, who's our newest partner. She's an orthopedic sports medicine specialist. She was a swimmer in the East Bay for years. 
uh, swimmed and, and then played water polo. She did club water polo at UCLA. And now she is a hiker, skier, swimmer, and active in HIT and boot camp training as well. And then that's me. That's my illustrious track and field picture. I was a high jumper um, and track and field athlete in high school. And I mentioned cheerleaders because I, I was a cheerleader at one time. Uh, most of my, my other colleagues make fun of that. But we, we were athletes where I grew up. Um, I also had a big injury. I was sidelined with a pelvic and spine fracture from a car accident in high school. And so um, I had to kind of work myself back uh, after being in a wheelchair for three months, crutches for six months. And um, now I love to cycle. I mountain bike, I golf. I love to hike. Um, so I'm really active. I spend most of my time watching my kids swim on the swim team. Overall, our collective experience as a group, we have, um, you know, we really have experience dealing with athletes of all levels. So if you look at the teams we've taken care of, um, Dr. Chang was the head of the Olympic uh, uh, Olympics in London. She coordinated the entire medical event there. Uh, she also ran the WNBA bubble um, or wobble as they called it. Um, we have doctors, we have uh, experience taking care of athletes from the NFL, the PGA, NBA, the National Hockey League, uh, Major League Soccer, LPGA, the ladies uh, golf, and as well as Major League Baseball, um, U.S. Soccer, San Francisco Ballet, the Oakland Ballet, the Joffrey Ballet of Chicago. I used to take care of them. Um, collegiate teams we've taken care of UC Berkeley. Dr. Chang was head team physician for 14 years. I was uh, one of the head orthopedic surgeons for eight years, uh, Northwestern university. I was the head team ortho there for four years, Santa Clara university, um, university of San Francisco Academy of art. Um, I take care of city college of San Francisco now, um, and Dominican university, and then multiple high school club and rec teams. So we have the collective experience of us women is, is extensive. And again, we feel comfortable taking care of athletes of all levels and areas of expertise. Um, with this collective experience as physicians, athletes, many of us as orthopedic patients, we have a unique position to position ourselves as a leading women's sports medicine center in the U S. So we're really excited about what we're growing. Um, you know, we have a team approach. Our, our goal right now, we're in our building phase, but, our goal is to offer not only the team of physicians who can take care of your injuries, but also to go above and beyond and have nutritionists. We have um, the human performance center where we have exercise physi physiologists, physical therapists, and sports psychologists to kind of treat the mind and body and food and wellness um, part of being an athlete. Um, the things we will offer again, we offer musculoskeletal, obviously musculoskeletal injury evaluation, um, we have a bone health component, which we have here at UCSF, um, sports performance. And again, I hope to have a start to finish appointments in one day. One of our, our goals is research. So we really, there's really a, a paucity of, of research on, on the female athlete. And we want to have a better understanding of sports injuries and female athletes and how these injuries may differ in presentation um, will lead to better treatment prevention strategies for this growing population. We know that there's this complex interplay of anatomical, biomechanical, hormonal, and psychological factors, um, and the mechanism by, within, by which the athlete's sex influences injury is really poorly understood. Again, our goal is to really get a better understanding of the epidemiology, severity, and mechanism of sports-related injuries in female athletes. 
we really have a lack of knowledge and we're hoping to increase that with our center. So our goals, again, future research for epidemiology pre pre prevention. These are our goals in the next several years and focus on the biology and biomechanics of soft tissue and ligament injury. And then as far as our community, we want to reach out to our community, work on really prevention strategies for young women and girls. Um, we also want to focus on aging and wellness. So how can we age better? This is a real interest of mine, maybe because I'm getting older. I start thinking about these things that, you know, I think it's fascinating when you're a doctor, you start seeing people that are 80 years old that look like they're 60. And, you, and then when I talk to them, you know, what do you do? And, and the number one component of and this, these are men and women, but the number one component you see is they exercise. Fitness is a part of their life. And so my goal as a physician is to keep people active and keep them moving because it's so important. I see, I see it every day. People come into my office. It's also interesting having practiced in Chicago for a period of time because there's so the weather is bad most of the year and there's so much less of focus on wellness and fitness and the, the food is different. You know, they don't eat healthy food like we have here in California. And it's amazing the difference in aging pattern. Um, so again, our goal is to really empower athletes to achieve success based on their individual goals using our advanced training in sports medicine. So thank you. These are my little athletes. Uh, this is my, my baby girl who's almost 10 next week. And then my son, and they like to ski as well. So that we ski and we swim and ride bikes. And so I'm trying to teach them to be active and healthy too. So um, I think it's time we can, we can do questions. If anyone has questions. That was really interesting talk. I, I really, I, I didn't know that there were so many like innate differences between men and women, you know, athletes. I, I had no idea. So that was really enlightening. Um, one of the things that um, I, don't, I don't see any questions here in our QA, but I thought I would ask you is you, you mentioned um, there's this huge industry right now of young kids who are just like doing two, three sports, constantly moving. Um, how do you, are, are there tips or um, differences between like a young athlete who is pre-monarchy and then the athlete that is, you know, post-monarchy and then you have, you know, and then the, the athletes that are, you know, in uh, after having, you know, gone through menopause, like, are there certain things that are, you know, tips um, that, you know, we, we, we can watch out for? Um, yeah, no, that's a great question. I mean, I think, you know, the issue you have is whether they're, so for the first differentiation is whether their growth plates are open or closed. So you see the kids with their open growth plates are now being asked to train like adults. All right. And tra let's travel around the country. Like we're pro athletes, you know, and they're, they're 10 and 11 and they're nowhere near being skeletal maturity. And, and I know, I think people do it with really good intentions, but they don't know that they're causing harm sometimes, you know, and that's an issue. And then, I mean, I faced it myself with my, with my children being pressured you know, when my son was 10, I love to tell this story, but he made this elite rug or it was a lacrosse team and everyone was very excited about, oh, he made the, this team. And we went to the practice and the expectation was that we travel across the country four times in the summer to go to Maryland and New York 
and for these special events. And I'm like, he's, you know, he's, first of all, I have a job and I'm working like most, most of you, you know, but you know, the child was 10, 10 years old. And I'm thinking why, you know, as a sports medicine doctor, I'm just, why, why in the world would my child need to go play lacrosse in New York for a weekend? This is crazy. So we, we quit. We didn't do it. We just, I just said no. And so I had him practice with the team that once you say no, this is the problem. Once you say no, and you don't show you're dedicated, then your kid doesn't get a play, you know? And that's, what's so sad to me. I don't know how to get that message across because we've lost it. Like we've already lost it. It's, it's, you know, they don't care that they're hurting the kids. They don't, they don't really think of it. Oh, I'm hurting the kids. I'm training them up, but really they're overtraining for where their skeletons are. So you can't take a 10 year old and train them like they're 22. I mean, so many of them are going to get hurt before they, before they make it. So anyway, once they hit skeletal maturity, then you can increase their training a little bit so they can do more weight training and increase what they're doing there. Um, And then, you know, but, but again, the pressure is so high. It's, it's crazy for these families. I, I, I don't know how to stop it having and and being part of it. I mean, I see it even when my, my son just advanced in swimming. Now he's swimming, but you know, at least in California here in the Bay area, most of it can be local, which is great. So for the, um, the women's sports medicine center, are there pediatric orthopedic, uh, you know, specialists? So, you know, my we daughter, do. I, you know, Dr. Dr. Chang, definitely Dr. Cindy Chang, who I think is on this call, but she was earlier, but, um, she definitely uh, sees children. I see people kind of adolescent and up, so 12 and up. And then we also have an affiliation, um, and I didn't put their names in. I need to put their names in the talk. I forgot to do that. But they're two women at Cho, uh, Selena DeBorgia and um, uh, Rhonda Watkins, who are our pediatric sports medicine specialist, and they are phenomenal. Um, and then Dr. Nirav Pandya as well is, our, is a sports medicine doctor out of there. But um, Rhonda Watkins and Selena DeBorgia are, are phenomenal like, and definitely part of this. Great. I see. Um, okay. So I see some questions here. So this one's from uh, Corey Silver and uh, they write, hearing the long list of areas where men's bodies seem to have an anatomic advantage, you would think that their lifespan would be longer than females. <laughs> What's the part of the paradox that I'm missing? <laughs> That's a great question. Why do we live longer? You know, there's a lot of theories on that. You know, um, uh, there's some one theory that, yeah, that the the metabolic demand of a man is more prone to getting mutation over time. Uh, Some people think it's just from from traditionally harder physical labor and work, you know, that there's more of an energy expenditure over time. Although I think most women who've raised children would say, no, <laughs> I did the hard work. So, so I, I don't know. That's a great question. I don't know the answer, but yes, men do have some physiologic advantages when it comes to sport for sure. We know that more muscle mass, the testosterone, um, and less prone to injury. Um, great. Okay. So now another question, um, is if my 16 year old gymnast, uh, suffers a wrist fracture, is there more advantage to seeing the UCSF sports medicine group versus a general pediatric orthopedic surgeon? Um, I think both could handle that. Um, I think 
you know, it's, it depends on how she or he injured it. If it's a, it's a woman, you know, I'm assuming if you're asking about a, a women's center, um, I think it's important at that age to discuss it with the, um, you know, what we can offer is, is a more in-depth approach, I think, than just a general person. General's fine. They can treat the fracture and really fine. But, you know, if you want them to have a nutrition analysis and talk about their bone density and things like that, that are important um, and delve a little bit deeper then we offer those services. So, but a, kid, a, a general pediatric, pediatric orthopedic surgeon can certainly treat the wrist fracture and treat it well and competently. So, Great. Um, I'm going to jump in with one of my questions. So, um, you know, I, I'm more of the um, uh, foot and ankle world. So I'm orthopedic surgeon, see lots of uh, foot and ankle injuries. And in my training, I worked with the New York City Ballet and American Ballet Theater. And, you know, what I find is that the, the very characteristics that make these dancers amazing at what they do their laxity, right, is also what is in some ways their downfall. So how do you talk to an athlete and try to reconcile, right? There, there are the gymnasts, right? They're, they're a gymnast, they need to be flexible, but then there are also that flexibility at some point is now detrimental. Like how, how do you talk to them about that? I know, no, it's, it's true. It's like something that makes you great. You see that with baseball too. I mean, um, you know, there's these adaptive changes that predispose them to being drawn to that sport, like, like a ballet dancer or a gymnast are great examples. Divers as well tend to be hyper-flexible swimmers, swimmers that have a lot of mobility of their shoulder tend to be, tend to excel. Um, and then you're right, then it, then it can make them prone to injury. So they're a little more prone to overuse injuries because of that hyper-flexibility, the best thing you can do as far as prevention is try to um, make sure that their muscle tone is very strong around those joints. You need the muscle. And I know that I'm sure you counsel your, your athletes a lot to do that. Um, that's what a lot of the rehab, you know, our physical therapists are our best friends for these people because the therapists are so important to get their muscle strong, um, to support those dynamics that they're doing. Great. Um, so we've got a couple more questions. So uh, here's one from Darren. So he, he says that I've heard that walking at least 7,000 steps a day is enough to keep up with general health. How much will walking keep up with bone density? That's a great question. I just read that article too. Um, that study came out because it used to be 10,000 steps, but now they've lowered it to 7,000, <laughs> which is good. <laughs> 10,000 is hard. It's, I, I walk a lot and I have my dog, which you can all probably hear in the, in the background, but, um, you know, but, uh, it is challenging on a work day when it's getting dark outside to get that many steps in. Um, so 7,000 is more manageable, which is good. Um, you know, walking is good. There is some benefit to your bone just by walking. So your body weight impacting the ground is good. Um, but a little bit higher impact is better. All right. So if you, if you balance that with a little strength training, um, something that has a little bit higher load bearing, your bone responds to that. It's called Wolf's law, but your bone responds to impact. It likes impact. So as you exercise over time, your bone will build. Um, so yeah, I think that's why it's so important for those young women not to stop having their periods during that time, because once they stop, then instead of building and remodeling all the time, then it 
it actually gets weaker. So another question from one of our attendees, uh, do you see higher injuries in postmenopausal women who are on estrogen blocking drugs? Yes, I do. So yes, women, particularly those are, that are being treated for cancer, for breast cancer, and they're on drugs that block their can. Uh, yes, they, they do get increased injuries as a result. Um, estrogen clearly has a vital component um, to keeping us healthy. And as soon as our estrogen levels go down with menopause um, or whether um, orally with taking medication like that, um, there's an increased risk of orthopedic injury. Definitely. And so I, I, it's interesting. The pendulum's really swung on estrogen replacement. There was a period um, 20 years ago when, when it was very popular. And then there was this study showing this increased risk of breast cancer and they, they pulled it kind of for everyone. And, uh, now our increased risk of heart pro- or they, I'm sorry, they were worried about the breast cancer risk. Now the pendulum swinging back a little bit where a lot of women are being advised to go back on it unless they have a risk of breast cancer, um, because there are some cardiac benefits as well to taking, um, estrogen replacement therapy. It does increase your risk of breast cancer after menopause. So good information. Um, uh, we have another question, um, says, do you foresee the end of at least youth football or rugby? I don't think so. Probably think not, they're, going, right? <laughs> they're going strong in my, t- and I'm in Arinda. It's like every weekend there's everything's going on. I, um, I definitely think it's lower. Uh, there's, there's people, I think that's why you see lacrosse growing so much because there's a sense it's safer. Um, there's definitely less kids going into football than there used to be because of the risk of head trauma, repetitive head injuries and all that, all of the um, publicity about concussions and how detrimental they can be as people age. So there has been a decrease in football, um, but it's still pretty strong. Um, there's been talk about, you know, at some point, what if football doesn't, you know, the, what if there's no football anymore, you know, could it happen? Maybe, but I don't, I don't foresee it in the near future. Someone is asking, can you talk a little bit about frozen shoulder? Um, as a GYN a nurse practitioner, I see many women who have had this, how is it treated and why does it occur? I love talking about frozen shoulder because I see it all the time too. It's one of the most common things I see in my office. Um, It's extremely common um, and it's kind of a secret. You know, I I feel like the general public doesn't really know what frozen shoulder is. Um, I certainly do because I see it all the time. But when I tell patients, you have a frozen shoulder, they go, what's that? Or maybe, oh, my my mom had that once. I, I remember that. But what is it? Unlike rotator cuff disease, that's really commonly talked about. The frozen shoulder is kind of a secret and it's a, it's a problem can occur really at any age, but it's most common in women between 40 and 60. And so as you see, and again, it is not in, in most of the, most of the cases are considered what we call idiopathic, which means we don't understand why it occurs. But if you think about what's going on in women between 40 and 60, they're going through menopause. So when I start talking to women about this problem, they'll say, oh yeah, I started menopause. You know, I'm, I'm kind of in that perimenopausal period. I started menopause probably a year ago. 
you know, but if you start asking them, they're in that phase where their estrogen levels are dropping. And I personally believe there's an issue there. I'm actually in the middle of doing a study on this. So, um, so yes, I think frozen shoulder is a real issue. Um, again, they get this insidious pain, this insidious onset of pain in their shoulder, and they physically can't move it. It's blocked. So you, you will try to move their shoulder and it won't go. Um, and then you get an x-ray and it looks perfect, you know? So sometimes that can happen if there's a fracture, if there's a dislocation or a really bad arthritis, they won't be able to move their shoulder, but in a frozen shoulder, you get this pristine looking x-ray and they can't move their arm. And the treatment, um, is almost always conservative. So it's one, it does not respond well to surgery. Um, we typically treat it with physical therapy, oral anti-inflammatory medication, just like high dose ibuprofen or a leave. And then we also, um, will give cortisone injections sometimes. So cortisone shots have been shown to make it go away faster. And I always have, I have this line. I tell the patients, it's like a broken record. I'm like, we don't know how long it will take. I, I always say the good news is it's going to go away at some point. The bad news is we don't know how long it will take. So it can take anywhere from two months to two years to fully go away. Usually after two years, it's gone. But once you explain that to patients, they seem to calm down and understand, okay, this is going to go away. You know, occasionally we operate on them if they're really resistant to, to going away, but I usually wait at least a minimum of a year before I consider surgery. So, so when you say two years, I mean, it, they're not in severe pain for two years, no, right? It, it kind of goes through these cycles. They call it the freezing phase and the thawing phase, but there, yeah, there's a period where it's excruciatingly painful and they they're miserable and then it will calm down and then it will just be stuck physically. So they, their motion is stuck and that's frustrating for them, but it is better when they get over the pain cycle, then, then it's better. Um, can take a long time. Wow. Okay. Yeah. That's the, I did not know that. that can, yeah. I hope I never get frozen shoulder. Um, <laughs> Me too. So yeah, moving on. So we have another uh, question. So does the 3D printing process of cellular material offer new options for those graphs that you currently use? I'm assuming talking about the graphs of the ECL, I think that's. Yeah, no, that's a great question. There's a lot of interest in that right now. Um and uh, it's funny, a company um, a CEO just reached out to me the other day and wants to meet with me to talk to me about his graft option. There are some 3D printed um, uh, things available on the market. I will tell you, when, when ACL grafts have been completely synthetic in the past, so back in the 80s, they tried to do ACLs with with Gore-Tex, they use Gore the same things they make the waterproof jackets out of. So there was this big push to do Gore-Tex graphs and then they failed. They failed kind of miserably. Um, so the thought now is to use, continue our human tissue, but also augment it with something else. So I talked a little bit earlier about augmenting, particularly young women um, to add something else to make it a little bit stronger, a little less likely to have a failure down the road. And so there, there's a lot of research and a lot of companies working on that. Um, there's another company I have talked to called BioRes, and they, they've developed a, a bovine cellular matrix. So they're combining some bovine tissue or cow tissue with a synthetic material uh, to create 
um, an extra collagen boost to the graft. So, so it's definitely being developed. Um, so yes, there is a role potentially. Got it. Um, this is a, another question. It's a really good question from a patient who uh, have had an ACL reconstruction using her patella tendon. She says, or he or she says, I have pain anytime I kneel on my knee. And is there something that I can do, you know, to prevent this? I know. I'm sorry, whoever that is out there. I'm sorry that happens because it is um, a really hard thing to get rid of. Physical therapy can help. So if you're still having pain, I would suggest you re-engage with a good physical therapist. Um, they can focus on what we call patellar mobility. So there's that scar tissue where they harvest the graft and they go in and they can kind of rub that scar tissue and break it down a little bit and hopefully make it feel better. And also sometimes there's some residual weakness of the quad. So the quad always gets weak after an ACL reconstruction. And that's part of the therapy is, is rehabbing the quadricep muscle, making it stronger. So, um, so I would suggest re-engaging with physical therapy and working on your quad and patellar mobilization. And that should hopefully help your anterior knee pain, but yes, it is a problem. And a lot of people will have that persistent pain. That's why there's so much, so much interest in different graft types because that patellar, that patellar tendon pain is real. It's real. And it lasts. Oh, and um, what kind of graft do you use again, Sarah? I, I use all of them. So I will do, I kind of tailor it to the patient. I talk to him about the risks and benefits of all. I really like the hamstring graft because again, they don't get that anterior knee pain. And so, uh, but you do, you trade it. So you get hamstring weakness for a while. And, um, but I have been very happy with that graft. And then I've started, but I'll do, I'll do patellar tendon grafts on people. I'm comfortable doing that one. And if someone really wants one, and that's really the standard in like the NFL. So if someone's like an athlete at that level, that's going to the NFL, um, almost all those men, if they've had a graft, have a BT, uh, have a patellar tendon graft, not because it's necessarily better than the others. It's just the standard because it's been around so long. So, so a lot of those old NFL doctors are like, ah, oh, we want this graft. So, so it's fine. And like, that's what we do. And it's, they work beautifully. Um, again, they can get that anterior knee pains, usually an NFL athletes getting therapy four hours a day, you know, so they've got a different, you know, a different rehab than the general public gets. So, so um, anyway, but that's a good one. And then the, again, the newer one I've been using, I've been really happy with are those quad tendon graphs and the quad tendon taking a sliver of the quad tendon has been really nice. So I, I do like that graft as well. Um, I think they're all good. When you see a patient and you're counseling them about using the patellar tendon, um, what do you tell them in terms of how many patients, you know, percentage wise, or is there a number that, that is likely to have? Knee it's pain? actually as high as 50%. Okay. So it's really high wow. who will get that chronic anterior knee pain. So I, I like to ask them if they have, if they start out with anterior knee pain, that's someone you don't want to do that graft on. So if it's a, a lot of young women will say, oh yeah, I have, if, so I talked about the diagnosis of patellofemoral pain where it's kind of a diffuse achiness or pain behind the kneecap. So if they have underlying patellofemoral pain, you do not want to take a bone patellar bone graft because then they're definitely going to have anterior knee pain after it. Um, so that's kind of the, the criteria that I use. Got it. Okay. Um, Another question from Esther. So she wants to know how good is that water aerobics? 
I love water aerobics. I think I used to teach water aerobics in college. <laughs> I loved it. I worked at this, I was a lifeguard and a water aerobics instructor. It was really fun. I think water aerobics are, are great. Um, it's um, a way to be active. You get in the water. Um, it doesn't put as much force on your joints. Um, I just, I, I think it's a wonderful way to maintain your fitness as you get older, or if you're rehabbing from an injury, it's really good. It's really good for anyone. I, I think, I think it's a great way to stay active. So, and, and again, you don't load your joints as much because you're doing it all in the water. The water supports your weight. So it's, it's a good thing to do. Great. Um, another question from someone so it says, I'm a pickleball player and I have arthritis in my thumb on my dominant hand. And the question is, is there a higher risk of a dislocation or break? I'm assuming maybe this person who's asking questions is a female. Um, yeah, I don't think so. I don't think there's a higher risk of a, of a fracture because of the arthritis. It's probably actually maybe a little bit stiffer because the um, joint kind of will auto fuse itself. Um, but, um, pickleball is lots of fun. I'm enjoying, um, I've been playing that too. <laughs> my friend, one of my good friends has a court at her house, so it's nice. I can go over there and just play. It's fun. But I would say, um, and it, it's increasing in popularity. So I'm definitely seeing more people with injuries from pickleball. Um, I had two this week, so I know it's getting more popular in the Bay area. Um, and yeah, I, I would try to play through it. If your pain is really severe, you could see a hand specialist and they can give you a little injection of cortisone. And then there's actually, a, if you have arthritis of your thumb, there's a very fairly simple surgery that can be done to, to deal with that and uh, completely takes the pain away where they excise a little bone out of your wrist and you feel better. So, so don't live with it in misery. If you're miserable, there's things that can be done that will help you. So. Okay. All right, so um, I have a last question. This is a great question to, to end the talk on today. So we have uh, someone who is asking, if you could change female structural anatomy in one specific location, eliminating most of the associated pain and mobility problems, what part would you improve or replace? <laughs> oh, that's a hard one. What part would I replace on us? <laughs> Our hearts? No, I don't know. <laughs> Um, maybe a bigger notch. <laughs> I know a bigger notch. I know. I think, well, I'm thinking if you could just change the alignment of the leg. Okay. So if I could change the whole lower extremity, make the hips a little bit smaller, see, we need our big hips. So to have babies. So that's why, that's why our hips are wider. So that would be bad. But if we could have a little bit slimmer hip and then, um, our knees didn't have such that angle that they do, then that would probably prevent a ton of knee injuries. Um, but then we would have a hard time having children. So that probably isn't good. <laughs> yeah. So just a bigger notch of the knee. We can make that notch bigger. There's more home. And I think if estrogen didn't cause our ligaments to be loose, I mean, all of these things, all these adaptive changes we have are for reproduction, right? It's evolution. So we have, we produce this estrogen, you know, we, why do, when, um, uh, you know, during our, our menstrual cycles, you know, all of this is for us to reproduce uh, and propagate our race. So it's hard to eliminate them, but if our estrogen levels didn't affect our ligaments, that would probably be a good thing too. And the reason they do that is so our ligaments actually can open to allow a baby to pass through the birth canal, which is interesting. So there's a lot of changes that happen actually during childbirth 
on the muscular side or the skeletal side where the whole pelvis will rotate open and um, allow that baby to pass through. So it's kind of miraculous when you study it. It's really interesting. But um, so those things that allow us to be women and have children are important, but they predispose us to injuries. So I'll take my kids. (laughs) (laughs) All right, great. Well, there are no more questions. Thank you so much for everyone for joining. Thank you, Dr. Edwards, for what uh, a very informative talk and great to know that we have this amazing um, women's sports medicine um, center at UCSF. I think that's going to be really helpful for a lot of our athletes. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.